Okay, so everybody's seen the movie Jaws, right? Remember the scene when Chief Brody's throwing chum in the water and the shark pops up and he backs into the cabin and tells Quint we're gonna need a bigger boat? Well, guess what? You're wrong. He doesn't say that. He says you're gonna need a bigger boat. You have just experienced the Mandela effect, a thing the internet made up recently when people started realizing their brains don't remember details as well as they thought, creating false memories they've chalked up to interdimensional demons or something. So today we thought it would be fun to go through some iconic MMA lore that you've likely always thought went one way, but it turns out the details weren't quite right. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 misremembered Zufa Mandela Effect moments. Number 10, Joe Rogan's debut. Every few months or so, an image of a young Joe Rogan with hair and a different shaped head at UFC 12 interviewing fighters will pop up on social media to the delight of everyone. It marks the first time the comedian had worked with the promotion, a seminal moment that would be the start of a long and illustrious career as the most recognized and perhaps beloved commentator in the history of mixed martial arts. Except that isn't actually what happened at all. Joe was hired by SEG, the former parent company of the promotion, to do these fighter interviews, but he was losing money flying out to random places like Dothan, Alabama, and Kenner, Louisiana. So he eventually saw it as too much of a hassle and stopped working with the promotion following UFC 17. It would be another four years under an entirely different ownership that Rogan would return, getting the call from new president Dana White to join the team at UFC 37.5. Yes, that's still the dumbest name ever. Anyway, even then, that wasn't really it. Yes, it was his first gig commentating with longtime partner Goldie, but he wouldn't be back after that until UFC 40. The gig wasn't exactly Joe's main focus at the time. He was just a huge fan. Fear Factor was his bread and butter, he didn't even initially take pay for the commentary. He only asked that his friends get awesome seats. That would change eventually, as would his consistency on the broadcast. But the idea that he joined at UFC 12 and has been there ever since is just flat out wrong. Number 9. Dan Hardy versus Herb Dean There was a curious incident that occurred on Fight Island that would ultimately result in the firing of Dan Hardy from the UFC broadcast team, but it wasn't the one you're thinking of with Herb Dean, a moment that is largely misremembered as well. Let's start at the beginning. It's Fight Island 3, we're in Abu Dhabi, there's not a single fan in attendance. All you can hear are the corners, the fighters, and the commentators. They could all hear each other as well, in fact. That's how quiet it was in the building. In a stunning turn of events, Francisco Trinaldo would blast his opponent Jai Herbert with an overhand shot that flattened the UK fighter. Everyone, the commentary team included, assumed this was the end of the fight. But Herb Dean awkwardly allowed Trinaldo to throw more shots on the ground before officially calling it, infuriating a commentating Dan Hardy, who was screaming for Dean to stop the fight. Shortly thereafter, the two would get into a verbal exchange that went viral and saw the outlaw reprimanded for getting up after the fight and confronting the referee. Except that's not what happened. There was an exchange, but it wasn't initiated by Dan. Herb can be seen on the broadcast pointing at the commentator shortly after the finish and would be the one to initiate the interaction. A completely separate incident that saw Hardy getting into it with a UFC staff member is what actually resulted in his being let go by the promotion. And that was nearly six months after the Dean debacle. Somehow, all of this got mixed together in the minds of a lot of fans, but the two events were separated by half a year. Number 8. The Greatest fight of all time. It's considered by many the best bout that's ever taken place. But how much do you actually remember about Roy McDonald versus Robbie Lawler 2 at UFC 189? I'm sure you have a vision of the Red King living up to his name, Robbie's busted lip, the stare down after round four, the finish. You probably recall Lawler in serious trouble at some point, but that's the thing about fights. We remember moments. We don't actually remember the entire thing. Do you recall the booze after the first round? Of course you don't. But the truth is this thing started off as a dud. When the commentators are using phrases like lots of mutual 
mutual respect and both guys are very cautious here, you know that means there's not a lot of action happening. Nobody was pulling the trigger in round one. There were occasional boos, Olay chants, and when it ended, louder boos. Round two was pretty much the same, but for the final minute when they picked it up just a bit, a key moment where Lawler busted open McDonald's nose. But the fight itself still hadn't reached a level I would call great. In fact, it was pretty mundane, but for the blood at that point. Round three was okay for the most part, but you still had Big John McCarthy telling the guys, come on, let's work at one point. And yes, the shots that Robbie landed were doing damage to that busted face, but even round three didn't reach any kind of special status until late when Rory landed that head kick to wobble the champ. Then we had a fight. Then people were into it. Round four, legendary. The lip got torn. Mac was blasting Ruthless. They had to stare down. Then early in the fifth, Rory collapses. Look, I'm not saying it wasn't a great fight. It has some incredibly iconic moments, but people definitely don't remember it for the fight that it was. They only remember the good stuff. And there are certainly other bouts that I would consider the greatest ever above this one. Number seven, the money fight era. There's a perception among a lot of hardcore fans that Conor McGregor has essentially destroyed the sport. Before he came along, everything was relatively straightforward. But now that this insanely massive draw has come around, everything's been thrown into disarray. Fighters are no longer seeking long-term title reigns. They want double champ status. They want to box the Paul brothers. They want to fight for belts that don't even exist and have The Rock put them around their waist. And worst yet, the UFC has completely bought into it, letting the integrity of their divisions diminish as they cash in on the money fights. Champions holding off on defenses for more lucrative bouts. 5,200 interim titles. The whole fucking sport's a joke now and nothing means anything. But is that really the case? Did McGregor cause all this money fight business? Or have things been like this since forever? Now, I'll grant you that there has been an uptick in interim title fights. But as for the money bouts, as for the draws taking priority over the sanctity of sport, are you forgetting Brock Lesnar earning a title fight after going one and one in the UFC with just three pro bouts? Are you forgetting about CM Punk's entire MMA career? Sean Gannon and his signing after beating up Kimbo Slice in a street fight. Speaking of, what about when they brought Kimbo on for the Ultimate Fighter? Remember James Tony versus Randy Couture? How about Ken Shamrock being randomly brought back to fight Tito Ortiz for the light heavyweight title after his prime? Let's go even further back. Tank Abbott, one of the original money fighters. The truth is Connor is the biggest of them, but the fight game has always been all about the money. As Tommy Lee Jones' brother in No Country for Old Men said, What you got ain't nothing new. Number six, Gus beating Jones. When you really want something to happen, naturally you're gonna have a bias towards it. And as it relates to fighting, you're going to give the athlete you're cheering for every single benefit while ignoring the success of their opponent. It's okay, we all do it. And at UFC 165, a whole bunch of us were doing it because by 2013, John Jones had become a bit of a villain in the MMA community. Now, none of us could have possibly predicted how wild things would eventually get with the young light heavyweight champion, but even a relatively clean JBJ was the focus of a lot of ire from the fan base. His perceived fakeness the UFC 151 debacle, his season of tough with Chael, the absolute dominance in the cage, the eye pokes, the quote running, all that stuff. So by this point, fans were just desperate for anybody to have success against Jones, and that anybody was Alexander Gustafson. The champion would retain via unanimous decision, but the narrative immediately afterwards was that John was pushed to his limit, that Gus was robbed. An immediate rematch, the only solution to rectify the judges getting yet another one wrong. And while it is true that Gus had success, he scored the first takedown on Jones in his career, he stuffed 10 attempts by the champion. He busted up his face. It was certainly the first time we had ever seen Bones look anything but flawless, minus an armbar attempt by Vitor Belfort. But in reality, the only round the judges could consistently give to Alex was the first, and the champ did a fantastic job of adjusting as the fight went on, definitively winning the final two rounds and losing the third on a single card. Of all the major media outlets, only one of 13 gave the bout to the mauler. The rest had it for the champion, many of them giving him four rounds, not just three. Oh, you don't care about the media 
media and their expert opinions. Okay, well, what about fight statistics? Sure, Gus got the takedown in the first. A huge feat that everybody was going nuts for. But his control time as a result was just 12 seconds. It essentially amounted to nothing while JBJ outlanded him by 30%. In fact, Jones outstruck him in every round but the fifth where they had the same amount of significant strikes, but John scored a takedown while stuffing four of the Maulers and virtually everyone, including all three judges, gave the champ that round. The fourth had the iconic spinning elbow that led to Gus being hurt. That's not in dispute. He was outstruck by nearly double in the second round and landed no takedowns. Even on paper, you're running out of ways to give this fight to the challenger. So while it was exciting to see someone give Jones any kind of fight, in hindsight, it was still another stellar performance by the champ. Number five, Yamasaki sucks. He's become a bit of a meme at this point due to one of the most egregiously bad sustained beatings in MMA history that should have stopped before the fighters ever even stepped into the cage. Mario Yamasaki, who was essentially banned from refing UFC events following the disaster that was Valentina Shevchenko versus Priscilla Cachueta, has become the go-to when making a joke about a referee letting a fight go on too long. Not only was the fight high profile, but the epic rant by Dana White about Yamasaki's performance on Instagram afterwards pretty much sealed the deal and made it common knowledge that Mario sucks as a ref, but that's really not the case. Sure, he handled that fight horribly, and there are others too, who could forget when he took a win away from Eric Silva and was interrogated by Joe Rogan, or when he missed the cup shot in the Trix Hughes fight. Mike Chiesa probably hates him to this day after he stopped the fight with Kevin Lee for no reason. And while yes, those are all horrible, and yes, he was on our list of worst referees of all time, his entire career wasn't just this giant disaster. Even the best referees will blow a call. Yamasaki's arguably the greatest referee to ever come from Brazil. He was actually an integral part of putting on the first UFC cards in the country, and was working high-level shows since UFC 20, including plenty of main events and title fights, literally hundreds of UFC bouts. He did Pride as well, Strike Force, Elite XC, K1 Heroes, the WEC. Tell me all the times you've been mad at Yamasaki, it's a handful at best. Yes, sometimes referees do lose it, he lost it and he's done. But before things got bad, before he was roasted by Dana White, he was one of the most consistent longtime referees in the business. Number 4, The Johnny Hendricks Robbery. It was one of the most memorable nights in MMA history. UFC 167, the greatest welterweight of all time, George St. Pierre defending his title against Johnny Hendricks. They have a back and forth battle, and the result, a shocker. The champ retains by split decision. Dana White can't believe it. George pieces out afterwards, saying he needs some time off. White has a meltdown at the post-fight presser demanding St. Pierre give Hendricks a rematch. It was pure chaos. But since that fateful night, the narrative has largely changed about the fight. GSP won. He clearly won. It shouldn't even have been a split decision. We were just too caught up in the moment of seeing potentially one of the greatest champions the sport had ever seen defeated, and as a result, we completely misrepresented what happened. Dana, he was way off, way out of line, and now the fight is largely entirely glossed over. But in reality, well, let's talk about it. As you know, fights are scored by the round, and lucky for us, two through five are pretty clear-cut and not really up for dispute. All three judges split them between champ and challenger. Hendricks definitely won two and four, GSP definitely won three and five. So everything comes down to round one. 16 out of 16 major MMA outlets scored that round for Johnny Hendricks and gave the challenger the decision victory. When watching it over again, despite the stat line reading 19 significant strikes for GSP, 18 for Big Rig, you can't help but clearly see when it came to the effectiveness of the striking and grappling that round, it was not hard to give it to Hendricks. In fact, you would need to make a pretty compelling argument for St. Pierre to ever change my mind, and I haven't heard one. Johnny Hendricks won that fight, and pretty much everybody knew it in the moment, they just forgot it for some reason later on. It was probably those interdimensional demons I was talking about earlier. Number 3, The Renegade UFC. In the excellent 30 for 30 that was done about the rivalry between Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz, Ariel Helwani touched on the new direction that Zufa took the UFC after purchasing it in 2001. They ran towards 
regulation. They didn't want to be viewed as renegades. They didn't want to be viewed as human cockfighting. And that is largely the narrative we hear all the time when it comes to the history of the promotion. The implication of that quote being that the previous regime was trying to keep this no-holds-barred persona. Anything goes. No rules. Just violence. And while it is true that the UFC was initially marketed in such a way, largely due to the involvement of Campbell McLaren, by the time that Zufa had taken over in 2001, Bob Meyerowitz and parent company SEG had for some time been desperately trying to get the sport sanctioned again in major markets outside the Deep South. Their goal was to get regulated so that the UFC could get back on TV, something that as a result of the campaign against the sport in the late 90s, created the quote, Dark Ages, when it was nearly impossible to view UFC events. In fact, one of the last straws was the belief that Nevada would never regulate MMA, something that Meyerowitz believed based on his attempts to make this happen. Under the old regime, gloves, trunks, and standard weight classes were implemented, as well as the beginnings of what would become the unified rules of MMA. So while it was Zufa that would ultimately save the sport in the United States, SEG was desperately trying to do the same before their demise. They were in a sinking ship, but they certainly weren't poking more holes in it. Number two, the downfall of Ronda Rousey. The late career collapse of Ronda Rousey is most often attributed to her change in style. The narrative usually goes that Ronda fell in love with her boxing as a result of her coach Edmund Tarverdian making her believe that she was an elite striker. And so when she tried to go toe-to-toe with the likes of Holly Holm, she was soundly defeated. Had she just stuck to the grappling that got her to the dance, she would have potentially won. But the problem with that is that's not really how the home fight went down. Rousey was certainly outstruck throughout, but the idea that she thought she was going to simply outbox a world-class boxer is not true. In fact, as early as 90 seconds into the fight, Rousey begins to attempt to initiate grappling exchanges, at one point getting Holly against the cage only for her to break free before a takedown. She even managed to get a throw-in and started working on a submission, but again, Holm was able to escape. The story of the fight was really twofold, Rousey getting lit up, but mostly as a result of charging in and having her grappling completely neutralized. The cherry on top being a takedown Holly scored of her own late in the first round. So the narrative, which in large part comes from interviews and her previous bouts against lesser opponents where she did rely more on her striking, isn't entirely accurate when you take into account the six different attempts to engage in grappling that were done by Rousey over the course of a six-minute fight. Number one, the Showtime Kick. It's one of the greatest knockouts in MMA history. It's a highlight reel mainstay that will be shown in replays of the greatest moments in the sport until the end of time. That was diabolical. Anthony Pettis. In a title challenge against Benson Henderson at WEC 53, a back-and-forth battle that could have gone either way, pulls off the most over-the-top kick anyone has ever seen. If you put it in a movie, people would say, oh, come on, that's way too much. He leaps into the air, off the cage, and plants a perfect kick right upside Bendo's dome. The champion collapses to the ground, fight over, there's a new lightweight king, get the Wheaties box ready. Except that's not what happened. I mean, yes, the kick did happen. Even if there are some who believe it was a setup, for more on that, be sure to check out our top MMA conspiracies video, but the part so many people seem to misremember is that it wasn't a knockout. Henderson survived, and there was a whole minute left of the fight still. Not only did it go the distance, but it wasn't even clear that Pettis had won. The fight was hotly contested, and there was uncertainty on both sides as they waited for the decision. It is understandable that people would think it was a knockout, because it's such a highlight reel moment, and the clip usually cuts off after Henderson drops. But no, instead it was simply the greatest single strike that didn't finish a fight in MMA history. Huge shout out to Max Randall for editing this video together. Follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. All right, that's all I got for you. Thanks for watching. Please like, subscribe, and have a wonderful day.